Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Another burning question I have. It seems to have become your little tradition. I know. You know, I think it's our new opening. Okay. (laughs) Should we discuss what I can only assume is your immense delight that Daniel Craig, who I think was the least talented James Bond, is going to be back? This is the You know, Hollister, it's not that I'm a turncoat on this issue, but I lost a little bit of my love for Mr. Craig when he went on that talk show circuit tour saying how he would rather swallow glass than do another Bond movie or whatever he said. (laughs) I thought, you know what? If I were a producer on that film, I would not hire him back. Well, you know, because it's so funny because when he left, you felt that he was one of the strongest Bonds ever, right? I really enjoyed him as James Bond. I did. Okay. Well, this is going to make you like him even less. Did you hear what he said in an interview, I think just yesterday, actually? He says that he's going to do less stunts to take care of his broken body. (laughs) So maybe that's right in line with what you were saying, that it's just too much for the little fragile, frail man. Or maybe he's trying to reassure the producers after Tom Cruise got injured on his set doing his own stunts this week. Yeah, did you watch the video of that, by the way? Frankly, it didn't look that bad to me, but you know... (laughs) I don't I don't cross the street without the light in my favor. So, but also our um, listeners were very active this week. I love our listeners' comments. Yep. This is one from Deborah from Vermont, and she commented on our list of six from two weeks ago, the one about our favorite murder movies. Okay. And she said that if you, Hollister, liked The Bone Collector, which was on your list with Angelina Jolie, she wanted to make sure that you checked out the books by Jeffrey Deaver the Lincoln rhyme novels. And this is what Deborah had to say. She said, he's written about a dozen or so with the same cast of characters. They get incredibly more complex and antagonists are so super bad. They give me nightmares. Huh? Well, cause I could use a few more nightmares. Like I don't have enough as it is. Exactly. Well, <laughs> as my mom says about Jeffrey Deaver, he is not for amateurs. By the way, I read some of his work and I think, ah, okay, you know, but you know what I'm try it. I'm going to try it. Okay. And then we got an email from Jane from Cape Cod about last week's podcast on the glass castle. Jane said that she absolutely loved the book. You go girl. She you thought the movie girl. was worthwhile. The actresses who played all stages of Jeanette Walls's life, she thought were excellent. But Jane said she thought the ending fell short of Jeanette Walls's wisdom. And I thought this was a really interesting comment. Jane said they could have improved the ending of the movie, if they had Jeanette Walls narrate. And she said when Jeanette Walls was on the Cape doing the book reading, she said something to the effect of, if everything in her life had formed her and brought her to a point in life that she was happy with, then how could she wish her past were different? And that's how Jane would have ended the movie. I thought that was a great insight. Well, it's funny because in interviews, she said she doesn't want it to appear as if she wished things had been different, you know, because it's just part of her life and the fabric of who she is. And and those uh, incidences were the wallpaper of her childhood, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's great. Good. Thank you. Thank you, Jane, for that insightful remark. Yeah. So to all our listeners, keep writing us at screenthoughts at gmail.com. There you go. And then I wanted to bring up, this isn't exactly news because it's, you know, totally about us, (laughs) but it might still surprise me. (laughs) Well, I was invited to a screening by Rudy, uh, 
Dolzell, who did Whitney, Can I Be Me? She, he did the documentary that's coming out tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so I was seated next to this gentleman who said, you know, what do you do? And I said, oh, you know, I'm a movie reviewer for Screen Thoughts. He said, I've always wondered, what qualifications does a movie reviewer need? Did you go to Princeton University and study film? What makes you a movie reviewer? I mean, why can't I be one? And, and I, you said? I, I said, you know, gosh, I wish there was another seat that was empty in this theater. <laughs> Unfortunately, there isn't, so it's you and me, babe. <laughs> and I said, I think anybody can review movies, and I think that, you know, you judge yourself based on the people who you move in your reviews. But I will tell you that we spend a substantial amount of time uh, doing research around the films, and we, you know, we try to be thoughtful and Um, and caring for our listeners' time. We recognize that their time is valuable. And he said, humph. (laughs) Now, by the way, I've read that. I've read that so many times, like harumph. And, you know, you you read it in books, you read it, and he just said, humph. And I said, humph, huh? You know, popcorn? Now, can I share my popcorn? I didn't have popcorn, and I wouldn't have shared with him or anybody else, for that matter. But I just thought to myself... I want nobody to think that we feel like we have some sort of degrees in movie reviewing, you know. But at the same time, I think everybody has a point of view when they leave a movie or what was the point of seeing it, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, so there you have it. And that's not news. But I just want to share that little fun incident that I, that I had next to this guy who, by the way, <laughs> was a surgeon. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. All right, any other news on your end? I just have a thank you. I really want to thank Janet from New Jersey. She's our listener who recommended that Australian TV series to us, Offspring, that we did a podcast about a while ago. Mm-hmm. I just finished watching season two, and I am in love with this show. And I'm so excited because there are five more seasons before I even <laughs> catch know, up. Right? Mm-hmm. Yay. Be sure and continue to send them in. So now we're going to get into um, we're going to get into our first movie, which I, I know you're going to have a lot to say, and so did I. But it's Wind River. Sheriff's office. I need emergency assistance. What's your location? The Wind River Indian Reservation. I'm Jane Banner, FBI. Welcome to Wyoming. By yourself? It's just me. That's Corey Lambert. He's where I found the body. I I left the movie thinking, this is so powerful, I have to go back and see it again. So today I did. Really? Yeah, I did. It's that powerful to me. And also, you know, it, it, we, you know, we have to talk about it from a female perspective. And yet, it was written by a man. And directed by the same and man. Direct, exactly. Taylor Sheridan, who wrote Sicario. And is an actor himself on Sons of Anarchy. He also wrote Hell or High Water. For which he was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. Do you, what's your, what's your first comment out of the gate on it? Well, Alistair, I tried to organize my thoughts around this movie. So I created three buckets and roughly you can think of them as the things that I liked. And there are many things in that bucket. The things that I thought could have been better 
And then a couple points that I'm not sure how I feel about them, but okay. I figured you would have a lot to say about those. Oh, you know I do, so go ahead. Why don't, you know, get, so... why don't you start out with one of the buckets, and how about the things you like? Okay, excellent. I really loved the atmospherics and the cinematography of this movie. So to me, I felt this is as close as we get to a Scandinavian or Nordic-style <laughs> murder story mm-hmm. in the U.S., and it felt Scandinavian with the snowmobiling through all the snow in Wyoming, so I was very Engaged. Well, I have to laugh because poor Elizabeth Olsen, who is the younger sister of the Olsen twins, mm-hmm. who is in it, she actually got snow blindness from the movie. <laughs> they stopped shooting. Really? Yeah. I believe it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Roger Flora, see deer in headlights. I mean, Roger Flora. So the cinematography is stunning. And in its beauty, it's also isolated and it's also scary. So sometimes you're out in the wilderness and, you know, sometimes I've gone skiing on very um, unexplored trails and there's a beauty that is, that is mind boggling. It's numbing, the beauty, but it was never frightening. And then when I'm looking at these vistas, you're afraid because you know what's, what's happened in it, you know? So, so I found the juxtaposition of the beauty of the cinematography combining with the fear of what actually happened out there, um, I thought it was a really interesting feeling to be placed with in a movie theater. That is definitely true. And something that I had that served as kind of an armor for me while I was watching the story unfold is that one of my closest friends lives in Lander, Wyoming. So we talk all the time. I've visited her and her husband in Lander. It's absolutely beautiful. And so even when I call and say, you know, it dropped below 70 degrees where I am today, she'll be like, it's snowed. Yeah, I could, I am. What is it that you do again? Hunt predators. So why don't you come hunt one for me then? Okay, this is the second thing I really liked about the film, how Taylor Sheridan handled the male-female dynamic and the fish out of water. So, for example, that scene where Jeremy Renner is talking about what he refers to as a crocodile. And she says, you do know that's an alligator because supposedly her character's from Florida. I thought, okay, she's a fish out of water in Wyoming, but she's not clueless. There were a couple moments where I was surprised by her protocol, but I was glad she wasn't completely clueless, how they sometimes Um, do. You know, it's so funny. I I think, um, and I say this a lot in business, I think owning up to what you don't know is part of what makes people truly successful in business. And when she arrived and realized she was totally out of anything she'd been trained for and out of her own element, and so she looked around for what she thought was the smartest person to lean on him, you know, you know, which is uh, was obviously Renner. Now they've worked together three times, so these yes. people, they're you know, which I and when they first met, I had to laugh because the meet cute of him talking to her about, well, you can go out, but you'll be dead within 10 minutes because it's so cold. And, and then Mm -hmm. even as he's explaining to her how this young woman died, you know, I thought, gosh, there's a meet cute. That's not so cute, you know, (laughs) but it's definitely, you could see the dynamic between them of them, you know, building. And also it was clear. They, they almost knew, I felt like, oh gosh, they seem so comfortable together. And now I realized having worked together on three films, maybe they should have been a little less comfortable in that first time around. Yeah. Well, in her defense, the FBI's also sent her up from Vegas. So it's not like she knew she was being sent to Wyoming, but I had to laugh Hollister because when I first saw Jeremy Renner appear in this film, I thought maybe he was still wearing his spacesuit from the movie Arrival. <laughs> you're looking for clues, but you're missing all the signs. 
Well, it's funny because he almost didn't do the movie. He, it was actually Chris Pine who was slated to do the movie with her because he had originally turned it down to do Arrival. And then what happened is Chris Pines got Wonder Woman, and so he was freed up early enough, so he came back into the film to do it with her. It was shot in 40 days, but it was a grueling 40 days, as you can see by the fact that she was blinded by the light. <laughs> I was going to say, I would have been pushing to film as quickly as possible if I was in that much snow. Hollister, the other thing I really liked about the movie was the jurisdictional issues. I thought that made for a very interesting film. So, for example, the fact it's on an Indian reservation, but it's it's a question of who's got jurisdiction over the case. Is it the tribal police? Is it federal land? Is it the FBI? You bring the oil reserves into it. And on another level, even when they're all doing their jobs, I loved the scene with the coroner where he said he could not list homicide as the cause of death. He said, you know, given the conditions, and this was another moment where I thought, I really can't live in Wyoming or any place that cold. You know, if you were out for five minutes and the air was trapped inside your lungs, your lungs would explode or implode. One of, you know, something that's just not that good. And they look at him and say, but we all know it's murder. And she says, if you don't list it as homicide, I can't get back up. And then Graham Greene says, don't look at me. I'm used to not getting any help. And you realize the reservation they say is the size of Rhode Island. I looked it up. It's actually almost three times the size of Rhode Island. So I thought that was a very interesting dynamic. Well, you know, the fact that people die at an average rate of 49 years old on this reservation, the unemployment mm -hmm. rate is higher than 80%. Mm -hmm. And they're not, they do not track, I mean, they say this at the end of the film, but they don't track women, missing women. And women are 10 times more likely to be murdered on an Indian reservation and four times more likely to be assaulted or raped. And most times the men are not... Um, Nothing happens to, to somebody when they're raped. So, you know, when you look at, at life on the reservation, if anything, he didn't make it, quote, harsh enough. But I couldn't help but wonder, and I've got to ask you this question. Do you think it would have been different if, if a woman had written this film? I don't know that I could just correlate that to gender. I know what I would have done different with the script, but I don't know what a woman in general well, would have done or if we would have all done the same thing. What was missing to me is we only see these women from the point of view of men. We don't, we don't really know anything about the two, the two girls who died a similar death. We don't, we don't know anything about them until the end when we find out that this young woman ran six miles barefoot in sub-zero temperatures to try to save herself. And that's when her lungs exploded. Six miles. I mean, O'Toole, it seems to me we deserve to know more about them. We deserve to know more about what they were like when they were living. And I feel as if if a woman had written the script, she would have given the girls a larger role in seeing who they were. It's quite possible. And that kind of dovetails with one of the things that I didn't like about the script. But... It might be because Taylor Sheridan's very motivation for writing the script was pointing out this lack of statistic keeping about how many girls are sexually assaulted and murdered on the reservation. While I was watching it, what made it difficult for me to watch is that if I'm going to watch a Scandinavian style murder mystery, if you will, <laughs> I'd like for there to be a motive other than that some people are just evil and find snow an excuse for evil behavior. And again, maybe that was 
exactly the point. Maybe he was trying to show women as the victims of despair and drugs and desolation, because I don't feel that I knew that much more about the male characters. Um, I think Renner, who, by the way, said in an interview that if he had had to cut off two arms to be able to play this role, he would have done it. That's how much Mm -hmm. the role meant to him. And I thought to myself, that's a really big statement. And I hope you don't mean it. But anyway, (laughs) um, I think I knew a lot about him. I think I knew that he felt you know, uh, totally bereft, Uh, you know, uh, he felt totally exposed as a man who had not clearly taken care of his family. All, you know, very much, very much I felt as if I knew him. And interestingly enough, we only see the father of the victim they're, they're searching to find the answer to. We only see the father a few times, but I felt like I knew him pretty well too. Like, I certainly knew the male characters better than the two female characters who were killed. See, I feel like it was such a visually powerful film mm-hmm. that there was so much time spent showing the scenery and the snowmobiling and the conditions that I can't say I felt as though I delved into these characters so much. But I did have this question. When they show the mother of the victim and, you know, it's as though Graham Greene's character and the father of the victim, they know exactly what's going on inside that room. And they let Elizabeth Olsen just walk in and the mother is there cutting herself. Was that done completely out of her reef or was there some ritualistic aspect to that? Because I felt as if, and I don't know this, that there was, it was a ritual or they wouldn't have known about what she was doing. I felt there should have been a little bit more on that than just closing the door quietly and everyone walked away from that scene. Well, I, I, I felt that I got it. I felt that I got that it was, you know, to, to give up her blood with the death of her daughter is to say I'm dying too or, so, you know, whatever it means, I don't know. Now that you've got me thinking about this, we never hear the mother utter one word. Uh, no, she's sleeping or doing nothing. Yeah. I mean, visually, though, that's very powerful. And now I'm going to say the opposite because there were some points where I thought the dialogue was a little too on the nose and in fact there were some lines where I thought okay either that was very powerful or that was a little schmaltzy I got lucky luck lives in the city luck don't live out here and I thought okay maybe that's a good line but then it keeps going you know wolves don't eat unlucky deer they eat the weak you're not lucky you're strong or when he says I'm a hunter I hunt lions so I'll hunt the killer. If it had been dialed back just a little bit, I thought the script could have been even stronger. Well, it's so funny because Renner was in The Hurt Rocker, mm-hmm. which um, was written by Catherine Bigelow. And I think this script should have been written by Catherine Bigelow. Well, as you know, I couldn't make it through all of The Hurt Locker the minute the head exploded well, I'm surprised the you made it through this. I want everybody, our listeners, to know I did call her and say, you might want to skip it. <laughs> It's brutal. It's a, you know, 14 people. The the death toll at the end of it was 14. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. But, but I've seen movies with lot. more carnage. But now, Hollister, this is where I really don't know where I stand. And I'm sure you have an opinion on this. So I wanted to ask you about it. Taylor Sheridan told his casting directors, don't even let an actor read for the part unless you can vet the authentic nature of their ancestry. And to me, this was a very interesting position to take. While all of the actors who were supposed to be Native American in this have some Native American ancestry, none was from Wind River. So no Arapaho, no Shoshone. Then again, Utah played the part of Wyoming. You know, Taylor Sheridan said, quote, there was someone far and away that was the best for a certain part, but I didn't hire them because they were not Native American. 
Well, you know, there's been a lot of criticism lately. I mean, we talked about it last week in Blind when, you know, the blind community came forward and said Alec Baldwin shouldn't be playing a blind person. You know, I guess maybe he's trying, and I don't think that's a bad thing, to make sure that people get to represent their own, you know, their own cultural heritage. But, which brings up Graham Greene. But I... Well, see, and this is the interesting thing about Graham Greene, who I almost didn't recognize in this, and I had such a crush on him in Dances with Wolves. Oh, my God. He, but, that, you know, he's been in 146 films, each one better than the next. He's a tremendous actor, but, yeah. for example, he's originally from Canada. So, yes, he's from the Six Nations Reserve, but from Ontario, Canada. The woman in the movie who played the murder victim, she's of Taiwanese, British, and Eastern band Cherokee descent. Julia Jones, who played Jeremy Renner's ex-wife, she was born in Boston. So she's part English, part Native American, part African American. You won't get the answers you're looking for, no matter what you find. It's just an interesting question because when we were discussing Bridges of Madison County, I didn't think Meryl Streep was cast appropriately. I don't even like watching Kate Winslet when she's got an American accent. But I was just curious about it because there was a very interesting article written in the New York Times by someone who is Native, Kevin Noble Mallard. And he points out not only is he Native, but he's a fully enrolled member of the Seminole Nation. And he said, you know, I'm not alone. More than three quarters of Native Americans live outside tribal areas, and almost half are multiracial. So it does bring up interesting questions, though, about who actually qualified for the auditions. Well, yeah, I, you know, I don't really have much to say about that. But but if we can just you know, return a little bit to Graham Greene, who does play the police chief. Should we wait for backup? This isn't the land of backup, Jane. This is a land of your on your own. I kept thinking, what's the adjective to describe this performance? I felt resigned was the was the adjective that I came up with. That's a great well, but yeah, you know, stoically resigned, maybe. And I couldn't help but think, gosh, 146 performances, all of which where he's played a Native American somebody or other, never a love interest. That I, I mean, by the way, I haven't seen all 40, 146 of them, but the ones I have seen, he hasn't. In other words, he's definitely typecast. And then I thought, must be pretty easy for him to play, resigned. I'm resigned to being the Native American whatever that I am going to be. And, um, you know, to me, that was sort of interesting, only, only interesting. But I, I thought that the performances that everybody put in, especially for a 40-day shoot, I thought were excellent. Well, you know what movie Graham Greene is about to appear in. What? Okay, here's your clue. Just think about your, your boyfriend. Oh, so it's got to be Sorkin. Yes, he's going to be in Molly's Game oh, with good. Jessica Chastain and Idris huh. Elba. I, I can't imagine what role he's going to play, but I assure you it's not a love interest. I'm not sure how much love is going to be in that movie. Yeah, well, there you go. Now, did you see Sheridan's Hell or High Water? I did not. Okay, the opening scene of that movie, I think, is one of the best opening scenes I've ever seen. It's basically a sleepy town that's clearly going on the out, not on the in. And it's a 360-degree pan of a car coming from far away and then driving in. And then this woman, you see this woman, and she goes into the building. There's nobody else anywhere around. And then these two guys who clearly came from the ominously arriving car go into the building and they brought, they start to rob the bank that she's opening. And he 
didn't quite get that kind of brilliance in his cinematography in this. So, but the guy has chops. I mean, he's trying different things and he is really, really, you know, very good at what he does. But I don't know that this script was written as best it could have been. You know, I just don't. So I can't really say that it was. Well, I did find it interesting that the Wind River Nations read the script and they visited the set. And I know you're going to laugh at me, but of course I sat through all the credits. Huh. 90% of the film's financing came from the Tunica Biloxi of Louisiana, whose vice chairman, the vice chairman of the tribe said, quote, we are always looking for ways to diversify our portfolio. But, you know, how can you take a movie that's so emotionally draining and say, well, it's, you know, we need to diversify our portfolio. I feel like I'm, you know, in a Merrill Lynch commercial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I recommend this film highly to anybody who cares about you know, about issues that surround us, especially around assault and violence and, and culpability and also, you know, follow through to make sure these things don't ever continue to go on the way they do. I really, really very disturbing. You know, I had the opportunity, I wish you had been here, I know you couldn't make it up, but um, I did have the opportunity to go see Whitney, Can I Be Me, with the director, and then uh, a Q&A with him afterwards. There will always only be one Whitney Houston. And all you can say is, drug addict, come on, please. Now, O'Toole, when Whitney Houston died, do you remember what you thought in that moment? Well, I had been thinking of her quite some time. I saw her perform live, and she was such a huge talent that in the latter years, as she was losing her voice and took the reality TV job, to me, it was just always so tragic to see that much talent um, be silenced and then to overdose on the night of the Grammys. well. Well, it was funny because I, like apparently many of Americans, thought Bobby Brown had taken her down the road of, of destruction. Did you think that? Well, you know, Bobby Brown went to high school in Massachusetts, and I know he has quite the arrest record in Massachusetts and had a big history of drug problems. And I hadn't really heard about her drug use until they got married. So I know a lot of people ascribed his lifestyle to her in that regard, that he got her hooked. But of course, I never lived with Whitney Houston or Bobby Brown. So well, who's the story to say? is infinitely more interesting. And also, she started doing drugs when she was a teenager. Her brothers fed her drugs. And also, the the people in her town, you know, she grew up in a rough section of New Jersey. Her rise to fame just took the wind out of her. She never had that belief that she was this amazing person. I didn't know it was that rough. I had a coach in college who went to her high school and he said that he remembered his little sister saying, you should really come to our talent show because there's a girl in my class who can really sing. And of course, that person turned out to be Whitney Houston. Well, no, she grew up in a rough town. I mean, they show the town and they talk to the people who grew up with her. And what's interesting is, you know, there are a couple of people who sang with her in her band. Whitney Houston died from a broken heart. She died from a broken heart. And there were four or five major heartbreaks. The first one was that she was in love with and constantly with Robin Crawford, who was her shadow and, you know, her right hand through all of this. But because at that particular time in 87, the presence that she was supposed to be presenting to the world would never have allowed her to be in a a same-sex relationship, she 
couldn't come out with it. And so, you know, then when Bobby Brown when came into her life, and some people said she ended up really being bisexual in the end, but when Bobby Brown came into her life, uh, the two of them did not fit. But Robin Crawford kept her on the semi-straight and narrow sa- to sanity. Now, keep in mind, her entire family was on the payroll. And when her bodyguard, who came out of England, sent a report to the family and to her saying that you have surrounded yourself by so many people doing drugs and so much drug, etc., your voice is going, you're smoking all the time, smoking crack will take a voice away before you know it, this has to stop or you're going to be in ruins. And basically he's on the camera saying she didn't need to die because if her family had done the intervention, she didn't want to be like that. But she was carrying them on the payroll, so they didn't want her to go to rehab for six months or a year or whatever. They didn't want her to come out of the closet. They didn't want her to do any of these things because they were all living high off her land. And in addition to that, the music that she put out was what what they call white music. And apparently there was a where there was an episode of Soul Train where um, she was booed. Her music was deliberately pop. Anything that was too black sounding was sent back to the studio. Whitney insisted they crossed her back over to black music. Her favorite saying was, can I be me? She was constantly trying to please everyone else but never herself. And... Um, so many people in this film say that she didn't need to end up the way she did. And, but the problem with the film is Rudy was asked to, 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 to come and do the footage. On her last successful tour, she asked him to come in and do it because she had seen his documentary, Freddie Mercury, The Untold Story, and The Rolling Stones, Argentina 98. And she loved it so much, she asked him to come in and start working on something for her. And he fell in love with her and her music, and he felt she was one of the most talented people of our time. And he talked about how much, when he was there, he saw how, unfortunately, she was being treated. And what was funny about it is, I think it made him lose perspective when he went to put the documentary together, because he he almost hammers the point home too many times. So it's very long. It's over two hours. It should be an hour and a half. And secondly, as you know, one my second favorite movie outside of Silence of the Lambs is... The bodyguard. I know. Okay. <laughs> well, here's the funny thing. The bodyguard who's in this film talks about how the movie mirrored her life. You know, she was surrounded by people inside her own little cocoon that were not necessarily up for her best interest, but much more for their own. And here's this movie that meant so much to me. And here it is. She's at, It was actually part of the life that she was living. And I thought that was so bizarre. So... The music in it is not as good as it could be because they couldn't get... A, the, the family ended up suing Rudy to try to make the film not come out during the Tribeca Film Festival. And the night before it was supposed to launch at Tribeca, um, they, Rudy won in the court. So, you know, they, they couldn't stop the film coming up. But they, they look awful. Her family looks awful, including her mother, Sissy, in the film. And 
the bodyguard to me that was the pinnacle of of you know is one of the pinnacles of her career and that the music that came out of the bodyguard was her most successful music it's still the most successful uh, music of any um, film that to come out but I now, couldn't... does that does that mean the song penned by Dolly Parton I'll always love you <laughs> and I will <laughs> yes of course I mean come on uh, yes mm-hmm. now interestingly enough Rudy was offered a lot of money for his footage after she died by a number of people and um, including Clive Davis and he wouldn't sell it to them. So, and he got permission obviously from all her family members. Who no, he didn't. That's why some you know, like he didn't. And also he went and interviewed Clive Davis and then Clive Davis had given permission for the interview. And then he took the permission away. So all of that had to be removed. There's a lot missing from the film. Some of it's the music, like there's music in it, but it's only music he filmed or music that's public domain. So it opens, the film starts off with the 911 call after her death, but it then moves into a footage, footage that he took in Berlin of her singing, um, I Will Always Love You. And it is, it's only maybe 45 seconds, but it's so powerful. And it set the stage for what you thought was going to be an incredible expose about her life and her music. And so it was a little disappointing after that because the music never lived up to that opening scene that he does with it. But it's certainly worth seeing, if not to examine your own, you know, opinion around drugs and stuff. It's just, it sort of opened my eyes to the... um, to the addict's personality and their inability to cope. And um, I guess I think she never had a prayer. Which is sad because there are already so many accomplished singers in her family. Did they interview Darlene Love, her godmother? No. No, none of the family members cooperated. In the end, he could only use footage that he had gotten. There's a, a short interview with her brothers, but... The, he wasn't able to get them to do anything else. And the only time you see Sissy interviewed is with Oprah. Would it have bothered you if your daughter, Whitney, was gay? Absolutely. It would have bothered you? Mm-hmm. So were you happy when Bobby Brown came into the picture? No. You weren't happy about that? mm Did you think he was good for her? No. Did you tell her that? Yes. Sissy felt that all these people were responsible for bad things, but in the end, Sissy did say that Robin had kept uh, Whitney on the straight and narrow. But no, you, they wouldn't. Sissy wasn't. Sissy wanted to stop this from coming out. It was this emphasis on being the perfect girl. It's worth watching, although, again, badly edited. What is with some of these documentaries lately that are way too long? Well, editing can take forever. It's like that old Mark Twain quote about, I'm so sorry, this letter is so long. If I'd had more time, it would have been shorter. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Which leads us to our list of six. Yes. Inspired by you having seen the movie about Whitney, we decided to do our six favorite biopics. So I'm going to do three documentaries, and you're going to do three narrative films. Right, because the smart girl's going to do the documentaries, (laughs) and I'm going to do the fun ones. Yep, that's it. (laughs) Okay, so what do you want to kick us off with? Okay, I'm going to start with Buck. Oh about God. the real-life horse whisperer Buck Branneman, who they actually ended up using his horse in Robert Redford's movie, yep. The Horse Whisperer, because none of the animal wranglers could get the Hollywood horse to cooperate. Horses are my life, and because of some of the things I'd been through as a kid, when something is scared for their life, I understand that. 
I loved this documentary. I thought he really came across as somewhere between a cowboy and a Zen master. A lot of times, rather than helping people with horse problems, I'm helping horses with people problems. This horse great choice. And also, it's a story to aspire to. You know, the guy's a great guy, you know, so I like it. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to start with Malcolm X. Oh. You know, the book was by Alex Haley, and I think it's Spike Lee's best work. You know, I think he's sort of in and out of brilliance. And to me, that was his most brilliant moment. I mean, obviously, I knew who Malcolm X was, but to watch it with Denzel Washington playing it, I just thought it was spectacular. So I started with Malcolm X. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. <laughs> All right, for my next one, I'm going to do Searching for Sugar Man. Oh, God, great one. And, Hollister, we've talked about this before, but I think when you mix genres, it can be so powerful. So to me, this was a blend of biography mixed with mystery. To many of us South Africans, he was the soundtrack to our lives. Everybody I knew had his records. The message it had was be anti-establishment. Really, the first opposition to apartheid, they'll tell you that they were influenced by Rodriguez. But nobody knew anything about him. He was a mystery. It was so well done. And what I thought was very inspiring at the time is the Swedish director who made the documentary ran out of money. And so he finished this, which did win the Oscar in 2013 for Best Documentary, on his smartphone. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep, but huh. tragically... A few years ago, he committed suicide in his 30s. So, you know, a very sad ending to what had been a very yeah. inspiring. Well, the other thing is, I didn't even know his music. And so, and once, I, you know, I loved his music. So it, it was it was an exposure to not just his story, but also the music that was so much bigger in South Africa than it was in America. Exactly. Yeah. Even though he was an American. I know. How many records do you think he sold in America? In America, six. Born in the trouble city. What a great choice. I like that one. Okay, my next one, I'm going to go to The Miracle Worker. Oh. Yeah, with okay. Aunt Bancroft and Patty Duke playing Helen Keller and her sidekick mm -hmm. Ann Sullivan. I, mm -hmm. I don't know. There's nothing more to say. I just think it's one of the great movies of all time. W-A-T-E-R, water. It has a name. W-A-T. And I think it tells the story really, really well. It was 1962. And I decided I have to go back and rewatch it. I haven't watched it. I don't know when the last time I watched it was, but that's how powerful it was to me that I haven't seen it in recent years, but it's still stuck with me. And for my last one, I'm going to go with Chuck Norris versus communism, which I think is an amazing tribute oh God, to the power it. of Do film and human it? spirit. I saw this at the Hamptons International Film Festival a couple years ago. It was about Irina Nistor, who risked life and limb in Romania under the regime of Ceausescu to single handedly dub 3,000 plus banned Hollywood movies oh, into Romania. It's an amazing story. You will be shocked at how some of these movies from the 80s 
were so inspiring when seen in this light. Huh. When you ban Rambo and you ban Nine and a Half Weeks, they take on a whole different meaning. <laughs> great choice, great choice. And I'm going to end with the social network. Oh, of course, because we're my, back to Aaron Sorkin. Of course, Aaron's always in the back of my mind somewhere. Mm-hmm. But also, I like the story of Zuckerberg being told that way. You know, I do. I need to do something substantial in order to get the attention of the clubs. Why? Because they're exclusive and fun, and they lead to a better life. Do you think that movie would have been different if it had been written by a woman? Absolutely. And yet maybe he's out there waiting to write Hollister's game. Okay, you have a, you have a really good point there. <laughs> okay.